Have you ever read a blog post or a white paper and heard the terms data science or predictive analytics used in ways that sort of feel wrong? Well, as it turns out, oftentimes these terms are used wrong. And by the end of this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, I hope you'll have greater clarity on five potentially very vague terms in AI and data science that are sometimes overused in enterprise AI conversations. This week, I introduce you to Hermann Sanchez, or as I refer to him, German. German and I are pretty close. Uh, he is a PhD from Valencia Polytech in Spain focused his PhD a lot on kind of natural language processing, has done a lot of artificial intelligence work in business, particularly in e-commerce and in media uh, and in other sectors as well. Um, and German helps us with our research projects. When we produce a large report, like we're finishing an AI and banking report right now, we have multiple PhD level advisors with whom we kind of fact check some of our terms, terminology, use cases to make sure that it makes sense, not just from a business perspective, but from a PhD level lens of sort of insight around the actual technical terms. We don't communicate the technical terms to people, but we need to make sure that what we're explaining is actually the right stuff. German has helped us a lot with clarifying terms, using the right terms in the right times and places, because he can talk business and talk AI. And I think by the end of this episode, terms like predictive analytics, terms like deep learning are going to be able to be used in a much more effective way by some of our listeners, um, because I think some of the vagaries around these terms will be clarified by this conversation with German. So this is a bit of a break from our focus primarily on use cases. We do address use cases, but it's really all about addressing use cases in reference to five terms that a lot of people get wrong. So be interested to know if you've gotten these terms right or wrong in using them in the past, but hopefully moving forward. Um, this will be helpful information to bear in mind. So without further ado, this is Hermann Sanchez, or as I call him, German, a good buddy of mine and research advisor here at Emerge on the AI and Industry Podcast. Without further ado, let's roll right in. So German, in sort of diving into data science terms, I think probably the best place for us to start is just with the term data science itself. You know, if you clarify to business audiences, I know you do kind of your consulting work and, and talk to folks who don't have a PhD background like yourself. When you explain what data science is and isn't in a simple way that makes sense for folks on more of the business side of the house, how do you frame it so that people can use the term correctly? Well, I would say that data science is perhaps the term that is the most difficult to frame because it's a like very broad term that has been heard of lately quite often. But in fact, data science refers to everything which has to do with data. So it's a very general term that basically comes up from the different fields that feeds from different fields, such as statistics, data analysis, machine learning, and everything which is related to data. Other possible terms that are also used in this sort of mishmash are big data, data mining. They are terms that are very ambiguous, very generic, and that try to refer to everything which is done with data. Hmm. There are some subtleties, but everything that is related to data would come into data science. Yeah, and so maybe using it in a broader, open-ended way is not technically incorrect. I know, you know, when we've chatted with you about our more in-depth reports, I will use you to ensure that we're not using a technical term in an improper way. It sounds like data science is going to be open-ended no matter how you slice it. Even from a PhD perspective, that's not necessarily wrong. Does that mean that you know, someone who's referring to a machine learning engineer, someone who's referring to, let's say, a data analyst, 
can say that they are both kind of doing data science? You know, is the person who's doing the feature engineering, let's say it's just a subject matter expert, they're sitting there with the data scientist and they are helping to pluck out the factors within a fraud algorithm, are they also doing data science? You know, where, where do we draw that line if we can? Well, I would say they, they are doing some data science because data, uh, uh, sorry, feature engineering is definitely part of data science. But I think that you yourself mentioned it, uh, this subject matter expert who is sitting with a data scientist and together they are building something. So perhaps the line would be in, in terms of there is this subject matter expert who is basically using his, his, his own knowledge, his brain to settle down these things, but he is not using the data as such. It's the data scientist who is trying to, to take this knowledge from the knowledge expert and apply it on the data that he is dealing with. Yep. So actually handling the data itself. So essentially the quote unquote doing of data science is with the touching it, you know, in code or in some format being maybe a part of a data science process could be feature engineering, but the terminology wise, we might not say you're quote unquote doing data science. Yeah, I think that's a good way to understand that. Cool. Okay. Any other kind of consider, you know, you mentioned data mining and big data and other terms, anything else to kind of grasp? You know, it's a generally umbrella term. We've kind of drawn the line about when you're doing it and when you're part of the process, anything else around data science that's just important to grasp if, you know, we're talking to a business audience that's, they're going to talk to technical people. They may never necessarily learn to do the code. Anything else they should know about using this term? Well, data science as, as a term, I think the, the first use of it is quite uh, far away. I think that there are some reports using data science back in the 1960s. The emergence of data science as a term or as a, or as a discipline right now is partially due because of the large amount of data that we are currently harvesting and, and gathering in, in, in every possible thing that we do in our lives, right? So that also gave rise to the term of big data. And I do want to put some emphasis there on the part of big data, because when we work with big data, it's important that it's big. So if you work on an Excel with a couple 10 of rows, then that's probably not big data, but you might be still be doing some data science. And then also a similar term would be machine learning. Machine learning is the part of the data science or of the, the big data that tries to extract some patterns out of that data that we are using. Okay. So quick distinction, German, and maybe we can move on, is the machine learning data science. I mean, sometimes we often will use AI and machine learning in a bit of a flip-flop in the context of writing a business article. We do have articles about both if people want to see the, the definitions. Those of you who are familiar with our definition articles on emerj.com can find those. But the machine learning portion here, German, would we really only safely say that that is for the folks who are handling the algorithms themselves? In other words, manually feeding, training, iterating with and tinkering with the algorithm itself? Is that the machine learning part? While someone who's more or less working with the data in more of a hands-on way, maybe without touching the algorithm yet, could quote-unquote be doing data science still. Is that a proper line to draw, or would you draw it differently? I think that's pretty accurate. If we talk, for instance, about data science in distinction to machine learning, I imagine doing data science by just, I don't know, drawing a couple of plots looking at how the data is distributed, trying to fit 
I don't know, a Gaussian distribution into uh, into that data that we are looking at or trying to explore which is the maximum amount of product someone has purchased in an e-commerce. That would still be data science, but it's definitely not machine learning. Got it. So the, the, the handling of the iteration with the training of the actual algorithm would be maybe where we would get down to machine learning. Right. Yep. Yeah. A little bit of a higher technical barrier to entry there potentially as well. Okay, so we'll just shuffle along to our next terms here. Predictive analytics is another one that I feel like is often used in a very general sense. Maybe even some folks just replace AI with predictive analytics, or I feel as though, particularly in stodgy older industries, when people say predictive analytics, they're kind of just talking about analytics. And so this is another one that's sort of used in a bit of a floppy way. Where do you draw the line as to you know, predictive analytics versus AI versus analytics, where are those lines drawn from a technical perspective? So predictive analytics is indeed another term which is quite quite vague, quite broad in terms of what it encompasses. I would say that predictive analytics is also a combination of different techniques and fields that basically the purpose is to attempt to predict some future event based on past historic events. Yep. So there is this predictive part, of course, so if we compare it with, say, regular or normal an analytics, when I listen to the term in analytics, the first thing that comes to my mind is Google Analytics, in which you look at, I don't know, the traffic of, of your website, perhaps the purchases of your e-commerce, basically looking at the data and, and trying to, to look at the data and understand the data. Whereas when you are doing predictive analytics, there is this predictive part in which you, you take up the data you have. You build something with that data, an algorithm or a model or whatever, and try to infer something that is going to happen in the future based on the past. And you also mentioned the term AI, which is also a very generic term. And AI basically encompasses everything we've talked about until now with one single difference, which is that it does not necessarily need data. Yep. Artificial intelligence refers to everything, which is trying to have the computer do something for a human that is not necessarily a plain algorithm, but it can be a bunch of rules. If this happens, do, the, do something different. Yeah, the old expert system kind of part of the game. It's, it's sort of the broad umbrella under which uh, the machine learning sort of category of things finds itself. If we're going to draw a line between predictive analytics and analytics, the, the cleanest distinction that maybe someone could think of top of mind is, okay, well, analytics is just showing me my current data, maybe in real time, or at bare minimum, analytics is showing me my past data. Maybe it's a week old, maybe it's 24 hours old, or again, maybe it's streaming in real time. Predictive analytics is telling me where things are headed potentially. And my supposition is that this would involve the fact that all of that streaming data that we're looking at is training some kind of an algorithm that's helping to make those predictions to tell me whether my manufacturing machinery here is going to overheat or whether this particular, you know, kind of th this set of transactions is likely to have a certain percentage of fraud within it, whatever the case may be for predictive. That's, that's maybe how, how I would presume that it should be worded, but how do you draw the line between the two? I think that's a pretty good line you just drew there. And Again, to me, the, the line is drawn with the word predictive, meaning in one case, we are dealing with past data, be it one second, one week, or one microsecond old, but it's past data. In the other case, we are dealing with inferring what that data is going to look like in the future. 
and it might be as easy as a as a simple straight line drawn across some points and that straight line crosses the the present time and moves into the future then we are already dealing with some prediction there even if it's not very accurate of course and would you suspect is there a line we should draw in the sand here with regard to predictive analytics for the fact that the data that's that's coming into a predictive analytic system I would presume needs to be training an algorithm that helps us to project into the future, even if it's only 24 hours or however long. And also, I would presume generally predictive analytics is going to need to be dealing with real-time data. It feels like it's going to be very hard for predictive analytics to take a week-old information that we cobble together and shove into the system and, and, and really be super useful. That one might not be necessary, but I would suspect that real-time is, is ideal and, and quite frequent with predictive analytics. Are, are those correct assumptions? I think they are with one subtlety again, which is that what do we consider real time? Because if we are dealing with, I don't know, events that happen once monthly, for instance, we are going to attempt to predict whether our customer is going to churn and the customer renewal is every year. So in this case, uh, real time means once a year. Got so it. It okay. does not necessarily mean in the last microsecond depending on, on, on what the frequency of, of the events we are looking at. Okay, so predictive analytics, yeah, it's, it's not necessary for business value to be derived from predictive analytics, only from real-time streaming data from a perfect data infrastructure. Like, maybe that's the case in a manufacturing plant where we need to predict the breakdown of a machine based on heat or based on vibration or some factor that's going to lead to either a machine's demise, it's going to cost us you know, tens of millions of dollars of, of lost manufacturing profitability. Maybe what you're saying here with, with customer churn is we may have to cobble the, the data together in kind of an imperfect way, but we do it once every month or something, and we figure out who, who coming up in the next six months is more or less likely to churn. And then maybe we can take actions depending on that, and it can be perfectly valuable, perfectly predictive in terms of using an algorithm, but not real time. Is that safe to assume? Yeah. Yeah, awesome. right. Even okay. in the machine term, if, if it's a machine that, that only is started once a week, then we don't really need streaming data for that. Yep. I mean, I can easily imagine a guy going over to the machine and taking some notes Got it. and using okay. that data for, to feed a model. Yeah, so so long as it's feeding a model. So predictive needs to mean it's feeding a model. Traditionally, with regular analytics, quote-unquote regular, where we're just pumping data into something visual or into a sheet somewhere. Humans do the predicting, right? They're the ones that project where it's going to go. The difference here is we have a machine that will actually continue to draw that chart or graph without human extrapolation. It's kind of an extension of intuition based on training an algorithm. Right. And also the machine is typically able to leverage more data. Yes. Such is the advantage of machine learning for any of you who've been hiding under rocks and not listening to any previous episodes, which is very, <laughs> very, very little of our audience. All right. Deep learning. Again, another term that gets conflated with machine learning. There's probably, you know, simple or simpler definitions that business people could use to draw the distinction between machine learning and deep learning. I've heard it framed a couple different ways. How do you like to draw that distinction for a business crowd when they, when they want to use the term deep learning? What do we mean here? Actually. To me, and from what I've seen, deep learning is a subset of machine learning. Yes. Machine learning deals basically with a bunch of models that try to model uh, reality and try to do predictions or whatever. And deep learning is just one subset of those models in which we are trying to, to leverage neural networks, complex neural networks, as a model for modeling that reality. 
And here our neural network is basically, a, it's a model that was developed in the 1940s based on the way of operating of a neuron in which in a neuron, in a, in a neuron, in a brain neuron, when an impulse arrives through the channel, this neuron activates it out, its output based on how strong the input is and a couple of more variables. The scientists back then tried to replicate this behavior and you have a bunch of neurons, of, of artificial neurons, that only get activated if the input or inputs have a certain level of strength. Then basically, if you take that model of an artificial neuron and, and build it into a very complex set of neurons, you have a neural network. And if you do that in a very complex way with backwards edges from some neurons to other neurons, and you make it very sophisticated, then you end up with a deep learning sort of model. But in the end, it's a bunch of very simple models. And in the end, it's basically a bunch of matrix multiplications of different multiplications of weights that get estimated in a very efficient way. Now, most of you listening in do slightly fewer matrix multiplications than German does in an average week, myself included. <laughs> but uh, in, in rough context, I understand where you're headed here. I've heard it often roughly framed as deep learning is, is simply the, the concept of machine learning, but just extrapolated through more layers of these kind of digital neurons, more layers of these attemptingly world modeling neural networks. Deeper neural networks is essentially the idea. I've also you know, heard that there really isn't a firm distinction. Okay, beyond layer four, it's now deep learning. I've heard some people say that, but for the most part, I've heard people with PhDs say like, I don't know what layer it is when it's called deep learning. It's just when it's a lot more than machine learning, you know, it's kind of a little bit of a gray line. Do you agree with that? Or would you prefer that when business people use the term, there's some technical threshold when it crosses from machine learning into deep learning? There is one threshold between machine learning and deep learning, which is the use of neural networks. Between neural networks and deep learning, there is just a bunch of grays. And yeah, I mean, there's no such thing as beyond four layers, it's, uh, it's deep learning, because also the different layers can be very sophisticated and very complex. And you can have yep. a, a model with one single layer that is considered deep learning. Yeah, for, for anybody who's tuned in, if you, you, know, if you look at what a, a company like Netflix does for recommendations or something, or you look at what Baidu does to translate language and, and you, even without, you know, being a formal machine learning engineer, just take a look at how complicated the different layers and essentially layers of layers of these massive sandwiches of neural networks of different kinds and orchestrations are. You'll understand what German is saying here that it varies not just in terms of how many layers, but what kind orchestrated in what way. And there's, there's a lot of variability there. So for deep learning, I think most people tuned in, certainly uh, myself included, presume that for the most part, deep learning is required when there is sort of richer or more, I, I hate to frame it this way, this is probably an improper framing, you can probably correct me, more challenging data to work with. So audio files and video and let's say images, these are not the same as text where in, in text, basically all text could, so long as it's not a picture of text, can be boiled down to ones and zeros that represent the letter L, the letter T, and it's easy for any machine to drink those in and potentially manipulate them. For images, we're just looking at pixels and colors of individual pixels, and, and that becomes so much more challenging that we need deep learning. When generally is the distinction drawn where we have to bring in the quote-unquote big guns here, throw in more layers, leverage deep learning, as opposed to a problem that, you know, a more subtle, a more modest neural network orchestration could potentially get the job done. How should business people think about when deep learning is needed? 
Well, you mentioned something which is actually important. In fact, uh, when dealing with words, with text and that kind of stuff, that's one of the first fields where deep learning meant an important breakthrough a couple of years ago. Because, in fact, if you deal with words, the number of words of a language is not infinite, but it's not countable either. It's a subtle di distinction, but you are not able to say, draw a whole list of the words in a language. That's not possible. And where I want to go with this is that, in fact, uh, language and images and these kind of problems can actually be very similar in terms of how you deal with them. And in the end, when you deal with language, you have a sort of image of a sentence, which is a, a bunch of arrays of different levels, which is pretty similar to an image. And in the end, if you want to use deep learning approach or a rather simpler approach, it's not necessarily in terms of how complex the problem is, which it is obviously important because more complex approaches are able to deal with more complex problems. But if you only have two images for your training data, for, your, for, for training your model, you might not want to use deep learning. Because in the end, a deep learning approach has a very large amount of weights, of parameters, of, of bolts that, it, that it, you need to tune. And if the amount of data you have is very small, then most likely you will have an algorithm that will just memorize your data because you have more bolts to tune than actual data. And so is there sort of a light distinction here that the more torrential and gargantuan our set of data, the potentially more required it's going to be to leverage deep learning. More layers, more data seems to be kind of the brute force AI equivalent when it comes to, you know, the, the, the advances in, in what machine learning can do in, let's say, the last five years or, or 10 years or so. So it sounds like you're kind of leaning in that direction. Also sounds like you don't believe that it's, it's useful for business people to think that video data may require deep learning much more so than, let's say, just, you know, text data pound for pound, that maybe that's not a proper way of thinking. We should think about it more in terms of sort of overall volumes or complexity of the problem. Where, where, uh, where should we think about drawing that distinction? I think that the complexity of the problem is a good way to draw a distinction because, for instance, if we are dealing with video data, but we just want to know if there is a red frame in the data, then we might not need deep learning. We might not, not need machine learning at all. We just need to analyze the frames of the data, right? Of the video. Yeah, yeah. So there are problems that can be, there are video problems that can be pretty simple. But for instance, if we want to, I don't know, try to create a deep fake video out of somebody else, then probably that's quite a difficult problem because we need to estimate the pose, vary the way in which the image is being drawn. So it's a very complex problem that you need two guns to, to deal with that. Got it. Okay. So that might be a general rule for sort of thinking about when deep learning may need to be pulled in as opposed to machine learning or some sort of simpler approach. I know you had mentioned in kind of our notes before the chat, sort of the that Yasha Bengio and, and Hinton and Lacoon had won the, the Turing Award in, in 2019, very, very big deal in the computer sciences. Obviously, deep learning is, is making important waves and is going to be a term that business people aren't going to hear any less of in the next couple of years. Any other important considerations around deep learning? Maybe a use case that you think is critical to understand or another quick concept before we move on to the next topic? I think one important thing about deep learning is that we are hearing about it right now because it's very useful right now has been around for quite some time, but 
like a couple of years ago in about 2012, there was this sort of perfect storm for deep learning to, to really go into the machine learning landscape as strong as it did because there were a couple of algorithmic advances in the deep learning community, but also because we had several important toolkits coming around, such as TensorFlow pushed by Google. We also had massive amounts of data stacking up in the last years. And also we started using the graphic processing units, which implied an important, a very important computational breakthrough for these models to actually be able to, to come through. On my laptop with my CPU, with my regular CPU, a model can take several days to train, whereas on a GPU, on a graphic processing unit, a deep learning model can take minutes. So it's several orders of magnitude sometimes. And that, of course, draws the line between what you can do and what you cannot do. Yeah, realistically, if you're trying to do experiments and find the usefulness of a process or the, or the usefulness of an algorithm, Obviously, if it takes you two weeks to figure out the result, you're only going to be able to run so many of those and, and do so many iterations to find value. But if it's you know seven minutes, you can blitz through you know fifty of those in a day. Yeah, and even you can you can draw the line even higher. I mean, some of the latest models by Google are taking, I think that was a couple of hours on their machines. Their machines are TPUs, which are further improved version of a GPU, and they had like. I don't know, something like 1,000 TPUs in half an hour. So basically that was an eternity on a regular computer. So that was unfeasible. So it also draws the line between what is feasible and what is not feasible. Yep. Okay, cool. So critical distinction, hopefully useful for the folks who are going to be using these terms in common parlance in the months ahead. I want to move us on to a term that's maybe a little outside of the box, but I wanted to run it by you in this chat because... I know how commonly it comes up in the enterprise artificial intelligence and enterprise machine learning conversation, and that is RPA, or robotic process automation. A lot of the time, obviously, this has nothing to do with AI, but there are intersections where maybe it's starting to criss and cross, and it feels to me like it's a misused term, like it's a gray area. How do you like to define what RPA is to kind of business folks who, who want to firmly grasp what is it and what is it not? So... Actually, RPA is something relatively new to me as well. And RPA basically deals with automating some tasks. And of course, that needs a bit more of a definition. So if you have, for instance, a process, a business process, where you have one person sitting in front of the computer and copying some data from one from the CRM to the ERP, just copying that data, that's something that RPA can automate. And you can basically save loads of time and loads of effort and loads of errors as well by automating that. So basically, RPA is the automation of, of some processes that are pretty mechanic from the start in a sort of intelligent way. And that's where actually RPA does start to bring artificial intelligence in, in, in terms of learning automatically to do some tasks that the user was doing manually before, but can that it, that are very mechanic and that are very automatable hence. Yeah, and so I, I guess we'll we'll kind of talk a bit about both of the things that you just mentioned, just to to clarify them for the readers. So on the one hand, we have you know what RPA was, for lack of a better term, which is you know maybe there was some manual process of well 
we have to go into this interface and we have to copy these cells under this saved search over to this area and then translate it into a chart and then merge it over here. So there's like this five-step process and we used to have to have, you know, somebody getting paid $18 an hour to kind of sit there and do that, you know, every morning at 9 a.m. Now we find some computer system that can essentially open that program, pull up that report, you know, copy this thing, whatever the case may be. And, and all of that can just be pre-programmed actions. It doesn't necessarily have to be deep learning here. We're just training a system to click this, move that, copy this, put it here. Um, and, and that doesn't have to involve AI. It sounds as though that's what maybe RPA was. Where is AI kind of creeping its way in? I can imagine maybe where that could be extended with machine learning, but what are maybe some, some areas where we could imagine RPA evolving with modern machine learning? I think there are mainly two areas. One of them is automating some tasks which were difficult to automate previously. For instance, if we are trying to copy some data from an invoice into the ERP and the invoice is a picture of an invoice, then we need there to put in place some optical character recognition technology in order to be able to do that. The optical character recognition technology, OCR, has been having an important breakthrough as well due to deep learning and is definitely not an easy problem even nowadays. So that's someplace that artificial intelligence, machine learning, and deep learning has a good space in, in automating some tasks that are difficult per se for a computer to perform. And then another part is in actually learning from the user to perform those actions. So the user is clicking around on the screen and the system needs to be able to learn what the user is doing. And of course, that means that open this window. If this window contains a red box, then do this. If it contains a green box, then do that. That kind of things, of, of actions that the system needs to learn are also being fed by artificial intelligence techniques and, and algorithms. Got it. So it sounds like I'm just going to try to make sure I'm not shelling this correctly. On the one hand, we have optical character recognition, which we could think of maybe as kind of document digitization. Can we take the workflows that we're doing in the physical world and can we automatically transmute that into digital stuff? Can we read the handwriting? Can we read the paperwork? And can we make our workflows all that much smoother in, in a digital space by using what is machine learning or deep learning to convert you know this physical information into digital information? And then the second thing is, can we see what the user is doing, how they're adapting, what processes they're using to get this work done, and have a machine that can learn? What are the subtle rules that the human never told it what the rules are? Just like if you look at a deep learning system that can pick out a cat from a dog, a human never maybe said the rules, but through enough iterations and through maybe some simple rule sets and some simple labeling of, of maybe some, some activities or something like that, it's possible for a machine to pick up on what a, what a human is, is doing. Are, are these maybe the two areas where you see that blending of, of what was RPA with what is evolving into machine learning? Right. In the first case, though, what I meant is that, that machine learning can pick up specific tasks, not just OCR. You can also have, I don't know, a user watching a video and if he sees an accident, a car accident, then the user needs to do something to, to write it down with the time step or whatever. That's something that can also potentially be automated by a deep learning system or a machine learning system that looks at the video, detects if there's a, a car crash, and writes down the time step. So I just meant to say that 
there is the specific task that the system can automate. And then there is also the, the workflow that the system can learn to automate. Got it. And so hypothetically, yeah, that's where RPA can evolve. Certainly from our perspective at Emerge, the evolution of RPA into something machine learning enabled has not been massively swift, uh, but there certainly is a lot of attention on things moving in that direction. I think it's worth tuning into for for the listeners, but I think it's pretty safe to say that the vast majority of RPA is just pre-programmed, if then, if this, copy this, paste that, zip zero on the machine learning scale here, but we should expect some intersection in the future. Um, We can wrap up, German, with uh, a topic that I know is dear to your heart because you work with a lot of text data and have done a lot of kind of business-related projects related to natural language processing. Also, obviously, your PhD was pretty thoroughly involved in this area. When you explain what NLP is as, as an expert in that discipline to a business audience, how do you like to explain it? Maybe we can explore this term last. Right. And it is one of the topics that I've dealt with the most. It was related to my PhD. So I'm, I'm very fond of this term. Yeah, <laughs> I know you are. Well, sir, so yeah. Yeah. How do you explain it? Basically, it's uh, natural language processing is everything which is related to human language. If you have a system that needs to recognize uh, what a human wrote, that's NLP. If you have a system that tries to understand what a human said with his voice, or with her voice, that's NLP as well. If you want a system to speak and to do some speech synthesis, that's NLP as well. If you want a system to understand the sentiment behind a, behind a tweet, that's sentiment analysis, that's NLP as well. And if you want to classify an email between spam and no spam, that's NLP as well. So everything which, ha- which is related to having a machine understand something or do something with human language, that would be the course definition of NLP. Got it. So, uh, and this obviously intersects with a lot of other disciplines within AI, some of which we've talked about recently uh, on this show, some of which we haven't. NLP, from what I understand, doesn't necessarily have to have anything to do with machine learning. In other words, there are NLP applications that that may involve more, hate to use the term, but kind of older school AI methods to, to still be able to get something done that might still be called NLP. Is, is that safe to assume or, or is the training of an algorithm, is, is the, the feeding of masses of data to, to train a system always part of NLP or, or can it sometimes not be? I think you're right, indeed. It's pretty similar to the term AI. AI can, can encompass machine learning, but can encompass some old school handwritten rules, which often quite work quite well. I mean, I don't want to, to, to say that they are bad, of course. And NLP happens is something very similar. Until very recently, and even now, we have some very good machine translation systems which are based on rules, especially for languages that are very well resourced, such as Spanish or English. You can have, or languages that are very similar also, you can have some machine translation systems based on rules which work pretty pretty decently. And then you have the other kind of systems which are based on, on corpora of large amounts of textual data that try to infer patterns from, from that data and try to learn to translate from the patterns it is inferring. Got it. So yeah, you have NLP that could involve machine learning in some way or even deep learning in some way or not. But so long as it's doing something, quote unquote, intelligent with language, making a decision, making a judgment, we're still in NLP territory 
to some degree. You know, in terms of use cases that maybe people could relate to, what are what are a few for NLP that business folks should understand? So now they know if we are manipulating text, you know, we're transcribing voice or, or we're making a machine speak to answer a question or we're understanding a, a tweet or summarizing a document. All of this is NLP. It involves language. What are some interesting use cases? What are some business use cases that you've seen a lot of experience with that you think would be useful for people to know? Well, one of the most important use cases and the most uh, widespread use cases, and I guess then one of them that's getting the more money out of it, is things like Alexa. Alexa is basically a several NLP systems put together as a speech recognition system. You talk into it and it recognizes speech. Then it does natural language understanding or intent parsing, which is basically understanding what the user wants from that already textual representation. And then it outputs voice. So it it is doing, again, a speech synthesis. So you basically have three NLP systems, at least, together to build Alexa, which is right now a very important business use case. And you also have, in simpler use cases, for instance, chatbots, which today are being used quite often to automate some of the customer interaction tasks. Yeah, and it, I know chatbots have kind of gotten a bit of a mixed rep there. I know certainly in my own experience, a lot of the most gimmicky, kind of lame, unqualified artificial intelligence companies fit in the chatbot category. I think there's a lot of maybe overpromising to some degree in that space. You know, in terms of conversational interfaces, for NLP. It seems like, you know, the labeling of spam, the forwarding of an email to the proper department, like let's say refunds versus technical issues versus whatever, that these feel like more business valuable NLP applications today than than the real conversing, which feels super hard. I mean, Alexa does a pretty good job, but that's that's more singular demand rather than, than conversing. Do, do you feel like we're looking at sort of a business transformation where that conversation will be more common? Or do you think NLP will be a little bit more one-off in its value, almost like it is today? And maybe I'm misrepresenting this, but I, I'd like your take. I think we are looking into a transformation. But that being said, NLP is hard. Human language is hard. So even if you have two native English speakers speaking together, they might find that they don't say the things the same way, and they might not understand each other at some point. Human language is hard. So that means that the way forward in NLP is, is still very open. And if we are able to take up on simpler problems such as, I don't know, spam, no spam, sentiment analysis, those kinds of problems are relatively simple. If you try to think of a conversational interface, that starts to get harder. And you might have humans having a, a, a tough time at, at doing some of those tasks as well. So leave alone a machine. What I mean to say with this is that I do see a transformation ahead. And I do think that conversational interfaces are going to have an important take. But there is still a lot of hype. And these kind of problems will not be solved in the shortest term. So you cannot expect to have a perfect conversational interface in six months. Yeah, I was going to say, if, if the, the most well-funded banks with millions and millions of customer service interactions per day, you know, can't make this perfect, and if, if Alexa, you know, and Siri can't, can't make this perfect with, with all the interactions that they have, then obviously the science really has some, some forward moving to do here. 
Uh, luckily, German, I'm sitting on the outside and I'm just going to talk about the business consequences and guys like you will do all that hard technical work. So <laughs> that's that's why we had you on the show. And I'm, I'm really grateful to have your clarification on some of these terms with the audience. So thanks so much for being able to join us and cover these big five terms. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of AI and Industry. This is your host, Dan Fagella. I hope that we catch you next week. Many of our executive listeners often get great ideas from our podcasts or our newsletters, but they end up coming to us for more help. So they might see some research project that we did with the World Bank, and they might want to do some of their own research on deeper market opportunities for AI in a specific sector or understanding the growth rates of AI in a certain domain. Uh, they might have seen some AI business strategy work that we've done with a pharmaceutical company and maybe ask about things along those lines or see one of the presentations that we've given at the United Nations and ask if we can speak at an event. Uh, and while we certainly do these things, uh, we're certainly involved with clients on pretty big projects on a regular basis, a lot of the time these messages will just end up in my personal inbox. People will find my email or they'll just find me on LinkedIn and send along a message. And this ends up being actually pretty tough to juggle at this point, given the travel schedule and given all the, the client projects that we're involved in. And few people actually know, particularly people who only listen to the podcast and, and aren't on Emerge.com or on the newsletter, uh, don't know that we actually have a services page that lists what we can help with. So we are not the best at everything, but in terms of what we do, which is mapping the capability space of AI and conveying that to executives in ways that help them win in the market, specific services tailored to that can be found at emerj.com slash services. So here at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research, we work with government departments, we work with public companies, uh, we work with organizations who are serious about making AI a competitive advantage. And again, we actually do list sort of the programs that we have. So many of the podcast listeners don't know this. These messages end up in my inbox and then I'm you know, traveling for two weeks and I feel really bad that I get back to people later, but you can reach us through that services page or simply send along an email at services at emerj.com, services at emerj.com. From there, Dylan or Marcus or one of our team members will be able to get back to you much more quickly uh, than I would via LinkedIn. So if you're interested in doing more with what you've learned here, if you have serious business initiatives related to artificial intelligence and you want to take your organization to the next level, just simply reach us at emerge.com slash services that's emerj.com slash services or just email services at emerge.com that's emerge with a j so thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode next week again we're going to be diving into ai use cases and trends and conveying the transferable lessons that you can bring to your organization and i look forward to having you here next week